Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. Hey guys, welcome to the first degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting across from Alexis Linkletter and next to Billy Jensen. We've got new audio recording equipment, so I hope this doesn't sound like shit. Does it? <laughs> we're not even putting that out into the universe. We know this sounds amazing. We were living in um, the prehistoric world before, but that's all changed now. Yeah, we're in the future. We're doing it. It feels good. Feels great. So please comment how crisp our audio sounds yes we need those comments to to rise above the old comments that says fix the audio fix the breathing although if the breathing is still here please tell us stop breathing so loud stop making fun of billy we can't st- okay we cannot stop making fun of billy just here's the thing the making fun of billy was a natural progression i don't think that we did it in the beginning it just started happening i think mostly from the owl poem i think it started with the owl poem and I'm okay with it. I have uh, accepted my fate. I don't know how to communicate without making fun of somebody. So this That's is just part of your personality. Yeah. This is me. Yeah. If Jack it. was talking to any one of you listeners, you'd be made fun of as well. <laughs> yeah. It feels good though. It does. I only do it to people I love. She's so good, it's, she's it's all friend. out of the goodness of my heart. Anyways, today is January 23rd and tomorrow is a very, I don't want to say special anniversary because it's not like a fantastic thing, but it's the 30 year anniversary of Ted Bundy's execution, which is why we are doing this episode in a timely manner. But the 23rd of January is also something wonderful, right, Billy? Happy National Handwriting Day. Mm, boring. Well, you know what? A lot of killers have been caught with their handwriting. That's true. Beverly Hills, Beverly Hills. Oh, it's on my phone case. It's on your phone case. It's, it's on, on phone my case. pillow. Uh, it's on my pillow that you copied. I had that pillow first. I know. I did copy you. It's such a good... I mean... It's the best pillow. It's so good. We're, we're, we're going to do an episode once on all of the misspellings in true crime history. That's because there's idea. a lot of good oh. misspellings. In true, I mean, from Helter Skelter, which they spelled Helter Skelter. Oh, God. To uh, Satan Lives, which they spelled Satin Lives uh, in Northport. You remember the Northport Ricky Casso case? I think my favorite day was Measure Your Foot Day. Was that one of those? I don't remember that. That might be from your... Oh, is it Measure Your Foot Day today? Yeah. Interesting. Is it really Measure Your Foot Day today? Yeah, what the hell, Billy? I feel like I you could know. turn that back into true crime, like oh, for foot, O.J. Simpson foot with his ugly-ass shoes, you know? Yeah. I would never wear those ugly-ass shoes, those Bruno Moglies, <laughs> than he did. <laughs> what is like, it? Yeah, what, a dozen on, times. On, on, on TV, uh, yeah. Oh, it was my favorite. Yeah. His face. So, Bundy Execution, 30 years to the day. Yep. I think people still care about it so much because it was one of the most historic yeah probably if not the most historic execution that we've had yeah and the death penalty had just been reinstated not recently but there hadn't been really this hype around executions in like these media blitzes around executions i mean there was thousands of people outside people were slinging merch t-shirts that said burn bundy burn on them and it was like a rock concert kind of it was and it's apparent that no serial killer really has captured the world's attention quite like ted bundy yeah and you have serial killers that while we're looking for them they've captured some attentions but then you find him and he's a schmuck he's a loser he's whatever and then you're just like this is the guy that we've been looking at like like golden state killer like Like btk Like Ed Gain, like Joel Rifkin, who they didn't even know there was a serial killer because he was killing prostitutes. There's so many of them that are out there. If we found Jack the Ripper, too, we'd be like, oh, yeah, whatever. You find this guy, 
and he starts representing himself. He's a really good looking guy. He escapes jail twice. And this is the reason why he has endured is because that he he doesn't seem like the type of guy that had no other options. He seemed like he had a lot of options. He could have gotten any girl, any girl. I mean, he's a quintessential psychopath. So he could have used his wit and his charm if he wanted to just have sex with girls or hook up with girls or treat them badly or whatever. Easy. Could have gotten anybody. But it's true. And I mean, he was intelligent. He was a manipulator charmer but he did end up paying with his life i mean he did ultimately get caught and executed 30 years ago to the day tomorrow right it all still resonates now people are still fascinated and intrigued as ever so three decades since his 1989 electric chair execution and the world is still wondering how someone so normal who is well-liked by former colleagues and classmates who once volunteered at a suicide prevention hotline and even after he got arrested were, they were raising money for him to saying that there's no way he could be responsible for this, who had friends and, and previous girlfriends who, by all accounts, said that he was instantly likable by everyone he met. How can this guy turn out into a monster? We all know, too, ultimately, that he was executed. But we don't often acknowledge these ripple effects and personal stories associated with these monumental executions. And we did give you a glimpse into the execution of a killer when we covered Paul Ezra Rhodes a few episodes back. But now we're going to cover one of the most highly publicized executions in American history, which, as we know, was Ted Bundy's. And we have an incredible first degree connection. A guy named Tony Panaccio was there when he was 23 as a journalist at the Clearwater Press. He self-admittedly said he was in over his head. It was a crazy story. And in the execution chamber, he ended up meeting a newsman who had been in the business forever, a guy named John Wilson, who ended up being his mentor. And they are still working together to this day at a media consulting firm. They forged a lifelong friendship in that execution chamber. So crazy. It's an incredible story. And I think so often these personal narratives go overlooked. And I think witnessing something like this can drastically change the course of your life. And we're going to get a glimpse into that now. He was there when this was happening. He was in Florida when the crimes were occurring. And just seeing firsthand just how the media reacted and how bloodthirsty everyone was, how much revenge everybody wanted. This is truly such a multifaceted, not only case, but as it culminated with the execution, there's so much to observe here. So we're really excited to expose you guys to Tony's story. My name is Tony Panaccio, and in 1989, I was a reporter for the Clearwater Sun and uh, was an eyewitness to the execution of Ted Bundy. I often thought about writing a book about the experience, and I was going to title it Peaking Early, because I probably did the best work of my career when I was 23. And uh, that was uh, because of the preparation I received and, uh, and just understanding the moment that I was in. I'm currently a media consultant with Wilson Media, and uh, one of my partners is uh, a gentleman named John Wilson, who is a retired news anchor, and he sat two seats down from me in that same execution. And uh, in one of the ways that uh, that execution changed my life is that it helped forge a 30-year-long friendship with a gentleman who I would literally take a bullet for. You know, what I did 30 years ago, in retrospect, was more important than I ever could have imagined uh, it was going to be. In one sense, it's just another day. I remember writing that uh, one piece uh, that uh, most of them were just going blithely about their day. One amazing thing about Tony is that he was there, and there are many misconceptions about what happened and what went down at the Bundy execution. He's going to tell us all about that at some point in this episode, which excites me very deeply. <laughs> at some point. Some you're point. making it very vague. But that so, means you just have to listen. We'll get there. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program, and it's available on desktop, or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. 
Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree 50 and use code degree 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. After more than a decade of denials, he confessed to 30 homicides that he had committed in seven states between 74 and 78. But the true number of victims is unknown and probably higher. No, they know at least 50. Yeah. But when I was talking to Tony, I mean, the numbers are just all over the place. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, because there was even other states that he was traveling through that they never really tied anything like specifically. to. Well, him, and the but- first murder they have him committing is in 1974. But he made a comment saying he finally reached his prime ah. methodology. And prior to that, he was an amateur. They were like, I'm sorry, prior to that? So what does the, that mean? How like, many did you commit those before? Those are the murders that he was like proud of. Right. Exactly. Before he was probably like, this was a sloppy job. I don't want to admit to it because of his pride. Exactly. What a piece of shit. It's terrible. Yeah, because he might have killed people as a teenager. And- right. I think that there's something where he like killed, might have killed somebody when he was like 12 or something, right? Yeah. Yeah. And there, there are people that look into those too. But, you know, the media circus around Bunny's execution, it's one of the most fascinating parts of the story. And it was one of the first media explosions in history surrounding a murderer. You know, we have this this true crime or in this true crime explosion, this true crime renaissance, whatever you want to call it. But this golden wasn't age the golden crime. age of true crime. But this <laughs> so is, this was not a thing back then. No. Um, it, it they was weren't something... even called serial killers, right? Well, by the time that he was killed, they, they had coined the term serial killer. It was in the 70s. Oh, okay. Yeah. But, you know, the idea of it really being a genre and having its own, uh, you know, space in a library and, and in a bookstore and things like that, it just wasn't a thing like it is now. And he is, in a sense, one of the reasons why it became a thing because of the way he looked, because of the way he acted, because of Anne Rule. And Anne Rule really wrote the first book. You know, you had before Anne Rule, you had Truman Capote's book, and then you had Helter Skelter, and those were the two. And that was pretty. And then you had all of these kind of like dime store books that were that were just out there, that were garbage. And Anne Rule wrote, wrote her book, and that really became 
the standard bearer, particularly for the idea of a female writer being into true crime. And it really, I, I think this is when true crime kind of turned from being a male-oriented almost mm-hmm. into a female-oriented. And we know, me and Alexis know from working in true crime TV, it's about 70 or 80% female that it's are watching crazy. these shows. Yeah. Do you want to give the listeners just kind of a summary of what Anne Rule's book was for anybody that isn't familiar with The Stranger Beside Me and what kind of how she is the... First, first degree. The first, first degree. The quintessential she, she, first really, degree. she really is sort of the patron saint of this podcast. Yeah. Because she worked with Bundy at the Suicide Prevention Hotline. Which is the most ironic thing in the entire world. And he, you know, I remember, I think it was on the first day he like got her a cup of coffee and he looked at all the phones and looked at her and said, are we going to be able to handle all this? You know, he was just a super nice guy. Mm-hmm. She described Bundy as a sadistic sociopath who took pleasure from another human's pain and the control he had over his victims to the point of death and even after. And we're going to get into that as well. And Bundy actually called himself, quote, the most cold-hearted son of a bitch you'll ever meet. So Anne wrote this book about Bundy and, you know, the stranger beside me. She didn't realize who this person was. She wrote a, a very, very good book and then went on to become, you know, the sort of queen of true crime for a really long time. And unfortunately, she passed away. But, you know, she really was the first degree. You know, that's it. She's the first degree of the first degrees. Well, and to bring it all full circle... Tony had, Tony Panaccio, our first degree connection, had dinner with Anne Rule. Oh. She couldn't get into the execution. Real? Did she want to? Yes. She did. Mm-hmm. Everybody know, did. It was the didn't... hottest ticket. It was like trying to get tickets to Hamilton in LA. It was impossible. <laughs> People were trying to buy Tony's spot from the Clearwater Sun, and they said no. Oh, my God. If we could add up all the money that's been made from people who have written books about Bundy, uh, written fictional pieces about people who are very much like Bundy, using Bundy as a template of the modern serial killer, uh, none of us would ever have to work again for uh, any day in our lives, and neither would our children or our grandchildren. It's funny because the night before, uh, no, no, two nights before, I had dinner at Denny's because you know, they only had two restaurants in Stark, uh, McDonald's and Denny's. And uh, Dick Larson was in town. I don't know if you know who Dick Larson was. Dick Larson was a reporter for the Seattle Post-Intelligencer, and he also wrote a book about Bundy called The Deliberate Stranger, which was later turned into a TV movie that starred Mark Harmon as Ted Bundy. So he was there for the circus, and uh, a lot of people behind the scenes, there were more than a hundred different news organizations, journalists, freelancers, what have you, who offered the Clearwater Sun tens of thousands of dollars for me to give up my seat so they could take it, so they could take my place. And um. uh, I was led to believe that Dick Larson was one of them. So Dick Larson uh, invited us to dinner, a couple of reporters uh, uh, to dinner. And uh, Anne Rule, the, you know, the queen of true crime, is also there. So I'm having dinner with Dick Larson and Anne Rule, and all I can remember is that Dick Larson ordered a steak, and you don't order a steak at Denny's. <laughs> and every time he tried to cut the steak, which was like shoe leather, the table would shake and everyone's drinks would spill. So you'd think, having a dinner with, with luminaries like that, I'd remember more than that silliness. We were the, that was the odd thing. I, I was 23 and I was a celebrity among the people who were there. All these people who were very important and far more accomplished in their careers than I just wanted to meet me. And they probably went back to the hotel rooms thinking, oh my God, this is the schmuck they're going to send. <laughs> okay, so for those of you who aren't super well versed in Ted Bundy, we're going to give you kind of an overview of his MO and, you know, what he was all about. He was super handsome and many of his young female victims regarded him as charismatic and he used these traits to exploit and win over their trust as a true psychopath does. He'd typically approach women in public places feigning injury or disability or he'd be impersonating an authority figure like a cop and then he would overpower and assault them at more secluded locations. So after he tortured and killed his victims, he would sometimes revisit his secondary crime scenes for hours at a time, grooming and performing sexual acts with the decomposing corpses until 
you know, wildlife and animals made them so he couldn't do it anymore, which is disgusting. And he decapitated at least 12 of his victims. And for a period of time, he kept some of the severed heads as mementos in his apartment. And on a few occasions, he simply broke into dwellings at night and bludgeoned his victims as they slept. What a guy. He's just strange in that his MO is really just all over it the place. It is all over yeah. the place. It's like, he kind of like goes through phases of... But the fact that he would just bludgeon sleeping people. Yeah. The chai omega house mm-hmm. he didn't even kill them all it was like he was frenzied yeah. he was in a rampage and all that happened there were four victims there i believe two died or, mm-hmm. uh, and it happened within 15 minutes yeah all within 15 and this minutes. is and this Crazy. is this is after that was like two minutes each we're putting the cart before the horse it's not two minutes each it would be more like three or three and a half but oh. but we're putting the cart before be the horse there'd be no math <laughs> this is in the not, words of billy jensen this is not like a calculus podcast yeah. billy jensen by the Anyways. way, I'd be told there would be no math was from a Saturday Night Live sketch back in the 70s, which you guys would I know. You Did said you it, know that? You said it last week, I so I just okay. copied oh. All right. So. Oh, wow. Right. You're really coming full circle. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, well, let, let's get into let, Let's not put the car before the horse. Let's talk about this guy and what he was like. All right. So, Bundy, he was born Theodore Robert Cowell on November 24th, 1946, um, to Eleanor Louise Cowell who was known as Louise, at the Elizabeth Lund home for unwed mothers. And his father's identity was never determined. But then he certainty his birth certificate assigned a paternity to a salesman, an Air Force veteran named Lloyd Marshall. But Louise later said that she had been seduced by this sailor who may have been Jack Worthington. And uh, so all of it, you know, right out of the gate, he doesn't have a dad. It's not ideal. <laughs> it's not ideal. It's not ideal. And... He may have been fathered by Louise's own violent, abusive father, Samuel Cowell. That's speculative. We don't really know. But what we do know is for the first three years of his life, Bundy lived in the Philadelphia home of his maternal grandparents, Sam and Eleanor Cowell, which raised him as their son to avoid the social stigma that accompanied birth outside wedlock at the time. So family, friends, and even young Ted were told that his grandparents were actually his parents and that his mother was his older sister. The truth always comes out, and he did discover the truth. He didn't discover the truth until quite later, though, right? There are two scenarios as far as when he discovered the truth. No one really knows what the truth about that is. Exactly. He told a girlfriend that a cousin showed him a copy of his birth certificate after calling him a bastard, but he told biographers that he found the certificate himself. So he expressed this lifelong resentment towards his mother for never talking to him about his real father and for leaving him to discover his true parentage for himself and the fact that, like, you know, he was raised thinking that his mom was his sister. So that's kind of weird. In some interviews, Bundy spoke warmly of his grandparents and told Rule that he identified with, respected, and clung to his grandfather. And in 1987, he and other family members told attorneys that Samuel Cowell was a tyrannical bully and a bigot who hated blacks, Italians, Catholics, and Jews. Bundy's grandfather beat his wife and the family dog and swung neighborhood cats by their tails. And he once threw Louise's younger sister, Julia, down a flight of stairs for oversleeping. Damn. Dick. There is also the story about him... At age three, assembling these kitchen knives around his sleeping aunt. So his aunt was sleeping, and he assembles all these kitchen knives in sort of a circle around her, and then she wakes up and says, like, what the hell? So that's... You at see, age you, three? At age three. Where'd yeah. the story come from? The know, aunt, people, I guess? Yeah, I guess the aunt, yeah. Weird. So... You're just like probably looking at that kid's eyes, and you're like, oh, no. Hard no. Get me away from Seriously. this child. So you've got that. You've got the animal stuff. Um, th- there were stories about him whether they're true or not, of capturing animals and actually holding them for a while and torturing them and then killing them. Well, there was, oh God, was it mice or something where he, I don't know if it was some kind of a small animal that he would get, but he would kill one and then like let the other ones live. And in his mind, he thought that was like him expressing like empathy because he was letting some of them live while killing one of them. Hmm. Interesting. That was right. like his version of like being a good guy. Weird. Well, he, he's described as somehow he roamed his neighborhood, picking through trash barrels in search of pictures of naked women. This is before the internet, people. He explained that uh, he perused... Do, they, do people throw pictures of naked women? I don't Billy, know how, uh, I don't know how fruitful days? those searches those were. Those searches are. <laughs> 
<laughs> I can't imagine somebody would throw away a good booby so pick. Like, let it be a naked woman. And yeah, just yeah, like, it's, it's, it's KFC. Old, MDKFC. It's oh my God. Peel. I almost went to MDKFC. Isn't that weird? I almost went to MDKFC. You did? I did. To what? To like an MDKFC bucket. I said MDKFC bucket. He almost said it. Yeah. We're in cahoots. Because that's what we think of in trash. Long of. Island trash is empty KFC. It's a chicken bone. I don't yeah. even know where there's a KFC in LA. There's one by the airport. There is? Not that I've been there or anything, <laughs> okay. but I know that it's there. It's like a free <laughs> bucket of chicken before you fly out somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Whole bucket of you chicken. Bring it, you bring it on the plane, too. You're just nothing like, Nothing says not being f- bloated on a flight like a bucket, <laughs> like a bucket of bucket chicken. Of chicken. <laughs> nothing makes your uh, neighbors feel at ease <laughs> like you eating a bucket of chicken next to them. So he also explained how he perused detective magazines. If you remember the detective magazines back then why they, would we n- remember that they were tell, we tell, our younger, tell your younger co-hosts and listeners all about it okay so the detective magazines they were known as being almost uh, kind of a little torture porny and if you look at the the covers it's always a woman in distress with her shirt ripped off and a guy attacking her and got they would say that guys would would use these to get off and it was sort of like no though but they could leave it out and be like no i'm just learning about detective stuff these were the original true crime programming it it was a little bit yeah smutty yeah uh crime novels and true crime documentaries for stories that involve sexual violence particularly when the story is illustrated with pictures of dead or maimed bodies so uh if that were true for a lot of our listeners would probably be on some sort of a watch list if everybody if that led to everybody becoming a serial killer but he also would consume large quantities of alcohol which is one of the really interesting things i find about him because he did a lot of this stuff really drunk really drunk and he got away with it too because you're sloppy when you're yeah How's he and, driving? And he would canvass no the community. DUI. First of all, there was no DUI laws yet. Yeah. Literally, you could drink and drive. There was no laws against it. That didn't happen until the 80s. That is crazy. There was no law. It was like, cool, alcohol exists and so does driving. There's no yeah. law. I to- remember my dad when he said, yeah, they just pe- my dad used to drink in the car. He used to just have a beer yeah. in the car. And then he said, like, no, you're not allowed to drink in the car anymore. He would still drink, though, but he had to hide it a little bit. And then I thought that meant drink anything, like you're not allowed to drink a soda or oh, anything water. like that. So for the longest time, I, I didn't like, drink I'm in the car. I'm thirsty on this road trip, but I'm just going <laughs> to... I can't bring a water bottle into the car. I'm going to be thrown in jail. So he also would canvass the community late at night, and he was a peeping Tom. He would look through the undraped windows and observe women undressing or whatever could be seen. So very similar to our Golden State Killer. I mean, he started off... As a guy that was uh, a peeping Tom, then he started, you know, breaking into stuff and you know, like he started on that path. But like you said, his MO just started just changed so much. He's really a, a fascinating case. And I hate to say that because I hate to put any of these fr- these freaking guys on a pedestal. But he's so interesting and in how he got away with it for so long is, is maddening. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. One thing I do want to say is in terms of our research, he confessed to different people all the time and divulged this information and then would deny it to certain people. So, you know, especially people who are his, you know, biographers who are writing things about him and then he would deny these same facts to police. So we're recounting this information to our, to the best of our ability based on the most reputable information about Ted Bundy, just so you guys know. But he's also a sociopath liar. So we're doing our best with what we've got. <laughs> who knows? knows? Exactly. The only guy who knew the truth was him. And he gone. Exactly. So as far as his social life goes, the accounts were super varied. He told some people that he, quote unquote, chose to be alone as an adolescent because he was unable to understand interpersonal relationships. And he claimed that he had no natural sense of how to develop friendships. Quote, I didn't know what made people want to be friends. I didn't know what underlies social interactions. 
classmates from his high school told Ann Rule that Bundy was well-known and well-liked, and he was a medium-sized fish in a large pond. So from his classmates, he just seemed kind of like a normal guy, nothing too crazy. He loved snow skiing. It was his... As does Jacqueline. I do. I don't want to be connected to him. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I do love to ski. I am not a sociopath or a murderer. It was his only significant athleticism that he had. And he enthusiastically pursued the activity by using stolen equipment and forged lift tickets. I wish you could still do that. They're expensive. It's $200 a day to go skiing. It really pisses me off. Would you say it makes you want to kill someone? Are you Jack Bundy? <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> it's not really a fun name. It's not terrible. So during high school, he was arrested at least twice on suspicion of burglary and auto theft. And when he reached the age of 18, the details of the incidents were expunged from his record, which is customary in Washington state and most other states. So he kind of had a clean record by the time he was a legal adult. Except right. for the fact that he might have killed somebody before then. Right. He likely did. And another interesting thing about Bundy, which is obvious, is that he was educated. Yeah. And we're learning most of these serial killers who get away with these crimes for a pr- prolonged periods of time are sophisticated. They're yeah. not idiots. So after he graduated from high school, he spent a year at the University of the Puget Sound and then transferred to the University of Washington to study Chinese. So random. Then he became, it's at this time he became romantically involved with a classmate at the University of Washington who was identified by several pseudonyms in the Bundy biographies. And this is something these authors do to protect this woman. She's most commonly identified as Stephanie Brooks. And this relationship will prove to be a very, very significant one. Yeah. And Stephanie, she was from the other side of the track. So he was, he was kind of lower middle class, I mm-hmm. guess. She was, she was it. Yeah. She was pretty. She was from a successful family. So she, so he, oh, the other yeah. side of the tracks meaning she the was the, the good side, oh, got it. Yeah. The quote unquote, quote, quote unquote, good side of the right, tracks. Right, right, right. So she was a soch, I guess. Yeah, he, he would be a greaser. Although he was, he did dress like a prep. Uh, and it, you hear a lot in his biographies of him while kids were wearing jeans or shorts, he was always wearing slacks and and a tie or something. He was very very preppy as a kid. Mm. Yeah, while he was at school at the University of Washington meeting Stephanie. He was also volunteering at the Seattle office of Nelson Rockefeller's presidential campaign. So he was kind of soireeing into politics. He was a young Republican. He was. And shortly after is when Stephanie Brooks and Ted ended their relationship and she ended up returning to her home in California because they were in Washington in college. And she, I guess, reportedly ended the relationship because she was frustrated by what she described as Bundy's immaturity and lack of ambition, which is a reasonable reason to end any relationship. I've ended a few because of the same reason. Good on you, Stephanie Brooks. Good on you. God knows. But psychiatrists who have assessed this series of crimes would later pinpoint this breakup as a pivotal time in Ted Bundy's development and that he was devastated by this rejection. At this point is when he travels to Colorado and further east in visiting relatives all over Arkansas and Philadelphia, then enrolling for one semester in Temple University. What I want to discuss is that in every serial killer's life, they blame it on a woman figure. Oh, yeah. yeah. Whether it's the mother or a fiance that breaks it off or a girlfriend who ends it. That's exactly what happened with D'Angelo and and GSK. I know. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. Yes. Bonnie. Bonnie. So he had a a fiance who ended the relationship. They were engaged and there Mm -hmm. was like announcements in the paper and all these things. And she ended the relationship and cut off the engagement and was married to someone else like a year later. But during one of his attacks, he was saying, I hate you. Bonnie while he was raping a woman. Oh, so my they were God. always looking for somebody with a Bonnie in their life. Right. And D'Angelo. Yeah. And had then it. that night when we were trading all of these stories about, you know, and finding things on new- when we found out uh, who he was mm-hmm. and trading all these newspaper dot uh, com archives, somebody found the story of he was he had been um, engaged once to a woman named Bonnie so that everybody went everybody went right to this Bonnie and it's like oh that must have been the reason why he turned to be a serial killer and all these articles about like but was that when he started no he had already been the Visalia ransacker oh yeah yeah Yeah. so he had already and he had already killed someone in Visalia Mm. he killed Professor Snelling in Visalia so no he was already a deranged 
head and he was going to keep escalating and he had been escalating right. and he was already the serial rapist when yeah. this happened. So no, but I will say that in every serial killer case, a woman is blamed. Yeah. Whether it's Ed Kemper in the mom, yeah. she's blamed for everything. Like right. there's one in every serial killer's yeah. life. Well, also he could be blaming. I mean, his could go back to his mom too, Ted Bundy. Sure. But like first, it's never a male figure. No. There's always some like scapegoat in the serial killer's narrative. Because men just always have to blame women for things, you know? It's Billy, always our fault. Billy Johnson. God, guys are such <laughs> dicks. Uh, you know what? You're right, though, in the fact that that people Thank run you, with the, right. people run with that story. They though, love it. Because it's a sexy story. Be like, oh, and, se- and let's go find Bonnie. And then Bonnie, poor Bonnie is out there. I'm not going to give too much about, you know, what she does now and everything. But, I know. You know she, but I, I'm not going to tell I you. I know, that. too. Oh, well, I'm gonna I know. know. You'll tell, we'll tell you after. <laughs> but she, you know, she this poor like, woman. She like, weird is like, job? Hey, did, no, no, no. She's, she's very kind of accomplished job. and kind of cool. And, oh. you know, and uh, it's like, what the hell, people? But it sounds like a good story. And whenever you're trying to... You know, when this broke, everybody, you know, when Golden State Killer broke, everybody was looking for a different angle. And that was one of the angles that people it's went like towards. salacious. And then, yeah. Yeah. Brings but like he a was, sexual aspect. He'd already to it. killed people before. This guy, Bundy, had already, you know, done all this stuff to the animals before. He very well might have killed before. Don't blame us but on this Stephanie Brooks girl. With, but with Bundy, it's like it goes back to like the sociopath narcissism of it where it's like he can't handle rejection. So he's going to go and retaliate. Not that it is because of her, but it's like for him, it's like, you know, that's the closest to quote unquote love he's ever going to have. A.K.A. He was just right. like, uh, and it was an obsession, really. But what I also do want to say really quick, though, is that serial killers are white men and people love to make excuses for them. You know, Brock Turner, these guys who are sexually assaulting women and co- like, it's like everybody makes excuses. It's the same way the Chris Watts yeah. pictures are him as a loving father. It's like people love to portray them in this like sympathetic light. Yeah. And it's just kind of a defect of like the media. I think it's a, I think it's a defect of the media for trying to create a narrative and the narrative is better if they're looking good and then they turn into a monster. Remember, serial yeah. killer, I mean, I will throw this out there and I know you know this, Alexis, that not all serial killers are white males, but you know, we got Lonnie Franklin here, we've got Wayne Williams, we've got all these guys, but the ones that are that get the movies made out of them. But, no, but that's the thing. But, I mean, that's why Bunny's so huge. Just no, because he was handsome because too. He was, he was handsome, and yeah, I mean, it's the racism of our society mm-hmm. that you can have a black serial killer that's killing particularly black victims, and they're not going to get movies made out of them. No. The way that I think the Grim Sleeper got a. TV movie on Lifetime made out of him, you know, and, uh, but it's not that it, we're really trying to like make movies. No, like, no, no, we don't, we don't want to, it's but, not something to like go after. No, no, no. People but, are less but, interested, but people are less interested. Yeah. And I mean that, yeah, that goes, it's like a deep seated yeah, racism. It's, of our it's the racism underneath it. And then for what the media tries to portray is that they know that this is going to sell because it is white people. And then they're going to want to paint this person as being loving and everything is good. Cause that's how every true crime story starts. Everything was beautiful in the sleepy little town. And then it went to hell. Mm-hmm. And that's why you, you get the pictures of Chris Watts being this loving father, and then he turns into a monster at some point. Right. Well, another interesting thing, too, is that serial killers rarely cross race. Into their victims? Right. So the black serial killers usually kill black women, mm. and white serial killers kill white women. And that's basically across the board. There are a few outliers where that's changed, but... I mean, in Billy, your experience, have you heard of any other cases, really? Yeah, they. D- yeah, I mean, particularly in the... Um, in those in those sex worker cases, you do see. That's it. what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know we can't, and that's one of the one of the problems with having tunnel vision with these idea of like who the serial killer is. Like with Wayne Williams, everybody was saying, you know, all these these little black boys were being picked up, and they were saying it was a white guy. And then somebody finally came in and said, "There's no way that this that a white guy is not going to be seen in this black neighborhood." And the idea of a black serial killer was just so foreign to everybody. Mm-hmm. And it turns out it was, and that's how they got him, and they got Wayne Williams, and he was one of the worst serial killers we've ever seen. Yes, in the is Atlanta that, child killings. Yes, that's the Atlanta monster. I'm undecided. And Bundy was. What was a new phenomenon at the time because he was charismatic and articulate and handsome, which made him incredibly effective as a serial killer because he didn't have to work terribly hard to gain access to his victims. And he used those attributes. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. He used those attributes in an evil fashion. Serial killers aren't, they're not movie stars. They're not TV stars. They, they, they're, they're not there for our entertainment. 
they're there for their own entertainment. And unfortunately, the thing that entertains them is the taking of human life. Another significant thing happens when Bundy is working in Washington. In the early 70s, as he's working for the Washington State Department of Emergency Services, he hits it off with a co-worker named Carol Ann Boone, who was a divorcee with a teenage son. She'd end up becoming a significant figure in his life, which we will get to later. But it's said that Boone, like many of his victims, was instantly drawn to Bundy's quiet intellect and good looks when they met. While the two had merely engaged in a friendship while they were colleagues, this would not always be the case. So what was Ted Bundy doing while all this was going on? He was working at the Washington Department of Emergency Services. But what's he doing? After the Stephanie Brooks breakup in the fall of 69, he meets Elizabeth Klopfer. I think it's just Klopfer. 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 Uh, <laughs> she's she's identified a in, in a bunch of different uh, ways as Meg Anders, Beth Archer, Liz Kendall. And she's a divorcee from Ogden, Utah. She worked as a secretary at the University of Washington School of Medicine. And they had a stormy relationship, which goes on well past his initial incarceration. In mid-1970, he gets, remember how... Stephanie had said she broke up with him because he was he had a lack of ambition and he was immature. He gets really focused, really goal-oriented. He goes back to UW and he's now a psychology major. He becomes an honor student. He takes a job at the Seattle Suicide Hotline Crisis Center where he works alongside Anne. And uh, Anne Rule. Anne Rule, sorry. And she, as being the patron saint, the first first degree, she saw nothing disturbing in Bunny's personality at the time. She described him, quote, as kind, solicitous, and empathetic. So that's weird that she used the word empathetic. Mm-hmm. He knew how to fake it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They know. They're like, what does compassion look like? I got to, he probably practiced it in the mirror. Listen, I got fooled by that shit for a long time. It happens. It, you can fake it. You know how to it's fake it. Terrifying. Fake it till you make it. People are doing it all the time. Yeah, but not empathy. Right. <laughs> now, why would you want to? That's a big one. Feeling compassion for people, it feels good. It does. Yeah, but they don't know what that's like. No. So after graduating from UW in 72, Bundy worked in politics, assisting on campaigns for the Republican Party. Again, he was a young Republican. In 73, Bundy was accepted into law schools of UPS and the University of Utah, despite mediocre law school admission test scores. He ended up getting in on the strength of letters of recommendations made by the politicians that he worked for. This is where it gets weird. So during a trip to California on the Republican Party business, Bundy ended up rekindling his relationship with Stephanie Brooks, who marveled at his transformation into a serious, dedicated professional who is seemingly on the cusp of a distinguished legal and political career, which a psychopath can also get into. Maybe he should have gone that way. Right. A lot of politicians are. CEOs. Most are. Right. So he rekindles this relationship with Stephanie Brooks. But the entire time, he's also dating Elizabeth as well. And neither woman was aware of the other's existence. And he's really a cliche because this is just, he's such a basic dude in this way. And at this point, he's in law school in Washington, and he had both of his girlfriends flying in to visit him and staggering them. And Brooks, though, was kind of his favorite because she was the one who dumped him and was the girl he couldn't get because she was from this good family All of that stuff. So they were discussing marriage. They were really serious. And at one point, he introduced her to the politicians he was working for as his fiance. However, he ended up abruptly ending things with Stephanie, cutting off all contact. Her phone calls and letters went unreturned. And she finally reached him by phone a month later. And she demanded to know why he had unilaterally ended their relationship and cut off contact with her without explanation. And in a flat, calm voice, he replied, Stephanie, I have no idea what you mean. Oh my God. And hung up. And she never heard from him again. <laughs> oh, my God. It's so American Psycho. It's, it's like they borrowed Ted Bundy phrases from him. Because I think in American Psycho, when he's breaking up with a Reese Witherspoon character, he's like, he, he uses these very strange, like, it's like dismissive. Avoiding all responsibility. Yeah. yeah. Like, will not succumb to the fact that you're a dick at yeah. all. And, and remember, in American Psycho T, he was so basic, too. I mean, that's so he's basic. He's like, I use my uh, moisturizer made of apricot scrub. <laughs> yeah. Like, I do 60 push-ups. Basic, oh, the, 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 whole, you, the Huey basic Lewis bro. in the news and Whitney yeah. Houston. Oh, and, my God. <laughs> so ridiculous. Douche. 
So ridiculous. But but so so some people have said that he did this on purpose. He went back into her life, got a relationship, made her fall in love with him and because like she saw that this is the perfect guy now because he's really got his shit together and all this stuff and then he goes and breaks her heart. Did he do that on purpose? Absolutely. 100%. He wanted to have the power. Like, well, it he, all comes he, down to power. It doesn't come down to his love for her well, or his he, feelings. He was literally quoted saying, I just wanted to prove to myself that I could have married her. But Brooks concluded in retrospect that he had deliberately planned the entire courtship and rejection in advance as vengeance for the breakup she initiated in 68. And Absolutely. whenever exes creep back in and they always do they always come back around that's always in my mind i'm like no you trying want to spice? you you just want to get the power back yeah. in, in your life narrative absolutely for some reason it's like it hurts your ego and you're just trying to get it back and then end it so you could just sit with that well, you want to have the last laugh that's what it comes down to has that ever happened to either of you no i won't i wouldn't allow it Oh, what? When I break up with somebody, I get disgusted by them. It's like a light switch flips on, and I'm like, I would never even talk to them again. I mean, I'm sure actually it's happened to me. I've made a lot of bad decisions, <laughs> but I've never. Th- my brain doesn't work like that. No, because I don't give a shit. No, because it's a, it's I a big waste. My ego, my waste my of time. I mean, this is a waste of time. I mean, he's traveling. He's doing a lot of stuff here. Yeah, but he doesn't he's got have a normal, girlfriend. He doesn't have a normal mind. Killing people. Yeah. You can't compare no, how you would go in a situation no, he's got with no Ted so- Bundy. Yeah, he's got no social media, too, so he can't see anybody. You know, she can't spy on him on his Instagram yeah. living his best life. See, it's way easier to get revenge on somebody like this with social media. Because you could just do it from afar. Yeah, but absolutely. But I will also say that something you'll notice throughout Bundy's series is that his narcissism prevails over all else. That's what I'm saying. Even self-preservation. Right. Because I feel like every um, every serial killer has like an Achilles heel. Because self-preservation, back to D'Angelo, that was his number one thing. Absolutely. This guy, no. I mean, and we'll get to it later in that, like, he was offered a plea deal. Yeah. And he's like, mm, I'm not going to... I can't say I did these things. Like, he just... Yeah. Nope. Yeah. Like, his narcissism knows no bounds. Nope. Exactly. And another side note, too, is that Stephanie Brooks breaking up with him is literally just the best decision she's ever made because Elizabeth was roped in mm-hmm. till the very end. Yeah. You know, it's like she you get entangled in these things. And she was so lucky that he did this. And ladies listening out there, it's always a blessing when they ghost. Oh. It's a Bullet you dodged, and this is like the Usually quintessential it's not bull- dodging a uh, serial killer, right? But, but no, like, but this is the always remember this story when yeah, you don't hear from could him. Be, be like, you know, it's probably for the best. Yeah. All right, that'll be on a T-shirt in one of our merch uh, when we finally launch our merch store. Exactly. What? It's always a blessing when they ghost. Yes. Ah. And the ghost is Ted Bundy's ghost. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a floating ghost. No, there's literally a Bundy-shaped ghost. A Bundy-shaped. Yeah, like you know, he was small. Around the time that he was icing out Stephanie, he had begun skipping classes at law school and he eventually stopped attending entirely as young women began to disappear in the Pacific Northwest. The year the murders began, he was the assistant director of the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Commission and wrote a pamphlet for women on rape prevention. What a guy. What a guy. So let's talk about Bundy's crimes. And there aren't enough hours in the world to go over all of them. So we're going to be covering a lot of the very notable, significant ones that display his depravity and MO in a really decent way. <laughs> so you can't, so it, you can't not even think of a good word sometimes. Yeah, because it's, hor- it's horrific. It's not like but, a great way. I mean, he's a very dynamic, sadistic serial killer. And we're trying to show you the scope of, the, his, of his complexities. Of his crimes, because he really, I mean, his MO varies. His What gives him pleasure varies. It's really just unbelievable. So first of all, there is no consensus on when or where Bundy started killing women, like we've mentioned. His stories varied depending on who he was talking to, and he really refused to divulge the specifics of his earliest crimes, probably because there's a lot of shame associated with killing other children. Yeah, I doubt that. You think he has shame? I don't know. I do think that... uh, I literally think it goes back to the fact that he's probably embarrassed that they weren't good. Sure, but that's shame. His version. That's yeah. his version. Well, I guess that is his version. It's not shame about killing them. Yeah. It's about not having it perfect yeah, or yeah. not this or whatever it is. So he did tell one person that he attempted his first kidnapping in 1969 in Ocean City, New Jersey, but did not kill anyone until 1971 in Seattle. He told a psychologist that he killed two women in Atlantic City in 69 while visiting family in Philadelphia. 
And he hinted, but he refused to elaborate to homicide detectives that he committed a murder in Seattle in 72 and another in 73 that involved a hitchhiker. But most law enforcement officers and those versed in his crimes believe that Bundy started killing as a teenager. Yeah. So there was circumstantial evidence. And the one that everybody points to is eight-year-old Anne-Marie Burr of Tacoma. When he was 14 years old, she was abducted and killed. He repeatedly denied that. His earliest documented and confirmed homicides were committed in 74 when he was 27 years old. On January 4th, 1974, he entered the basement apartment of 18-year-old Karen Sparks, who was a dancer and student at UW. And he bludgeoned her senseless with a metal rod from her bed frame. This is another thing that he would do, too, is that he would use stuff from the house. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't wasn't caught walking around with a weapon. He would use whatever was handy. And we see this come out in, in Florida as well. He sexually assaults her with either the same rod or another piece of metal, causing extensive internal injuries. She remained unconscious for 10 days, but survived with permanent physical and mental disabilities. Then on the morning hours of February 1st, Bundy broke into the basement room of Linda Ann Healy, a UW undergraduate who broadcasts morning radio weather reports for skiers. He beat her unconscious, dressed her in blue jeans, a white blouse and boots and carried her away. And during the first half of 74, female college students disappeared at the rate about one per month, which has got to be the most terrifying thing in the world. Yes. If depending on the state of the media at that time, I mean, I don't know that they're like reporting it really. I'm sure they were reporting it. And I don't know if this is in hindsight where it's like, oh, we did the math. There was one a month or if it was like this widespread alert. They were going missing. They weren't finding their bodies. He was putting them all on this mountain. And right. You know, the interesting thing with the Healy case is that he undressed her. You know, he hit her. She bleeds on her nightgown. He undresses her and hangs the nightgown up and then makes her bed. She never made her bed. So he made her bed. And that was the first thing. We're just like, she never makes her bed. And he made her bed like actually really nice. Then he carried her upstairs and then into the night. Yeah. So disturbing. So the next murders were Donna Gill Manson on March 12th, Suzanne Elaine Rancor on April 17th, and then two female Central Washington students later came forward to report encounters around the time the other women were vanishing. The women described a man wearing an arm sling, asking for help, carrying a load of books to his brown or tan Volkswagen Beetle. And then on May 6th, Roberta Kathleen Parks also disappeared. So in all of these cases, the police were really baffled. There was no significant physical evidence, and these missing women had little in common apart from being young, attractive, white college students with long hair parted in the middle. And most of them, I think, had long brown hair. He liked brunettes. College-age women and girls from Washington kept disappearing, and in many of these cases, either in murders where they were finding the bodies or these disappearances, witnesses came forward to report seeing a man on crutches with a leg cast who was struggling to carry a briefcase. One woman recalled that the man asked her to help him carry a case to his car, a light brown Volkswagen Beetle. And during this period, Bundy was working in Olympia at the Department of Emergency Services, which is the state government agency that is involved in searching for missing women. And it's just, you see this again with serial killers Mm -hmm. putting themselves in positions to have access to this information. We saw it again with the Golden State Killer, where he was in Visalia working in Exeter on the anti-burglary task force (laughs) as he's burglarizing a home a night. Yeah. And, you know, the pictures of these women who are going missing are running in newspapers or running in television throughout Washington, Oregon. Uh, Women stop hitchhiking. uh, That that drops sharply. But, you know, people are seeing him. And this is one of the places where I think the police dropped the ball is that, you know, he was he would hit up one woman and say, hey, can you help me to my car? And then she would say no and then hit up the next one and say no. And then the third one would say yes. But nobody could ever really put the dots together um, until we're going to get to it in in a little bit. But it's he was doing this. He was so brazen in this, you know, Uh, he was out there. He was introducing himself as Ted. Yeah. So he was using his real name. He wasn't covering his face. He wasn't acting like he was doing the same shtick for a while of like broken arm and the beat he loved a beetle yeah so so the disappearance that they all took place at night all near ongoing construction work within a week of midterm or final exams which i found interesting as well just because people are they don't have their head in the right place you know you're you're the most stressful time if you can get back to where you were as a kid uh studying in college that's the most stressful time and you're you're maybe not thinking with all of your faculties in terms of what's around you uh, the victims are all wearing slacks or blue jeans, so no dresses. And at most of the crime scenes, there were sightings of a man in a cast or a sling 
or um, the leg casts um, and the crutches and driving this brown or tan Volkswagen Beetle. Not a manly car. He loved it, though. I know. It's probably the cool car back then. Was it, Billy? All right. What about in the 1800s? (laughs) What was cool then? The horse buggy? In the 70s? Yeah. So, uh, what was I, six years old, seven years old, something like that? Sure, sure. They, uh, yeah. The, the <laughs> he was, like was 70 in the 60s. Yeah. My, the my godmother <laughs> went out with a guy that had a huge afro that worked at a record store, and he drove a Volkswagen Beetle, and he was like a cool guy. Yeah, you know? I feel like Volkswagen was like the cool car, because they had the, the buses, too. You know? Oh, we we had two of those buses. I'm yeah, sure they you were did, cool. Billy. It was like right after like Woodstock. Vibes. When you were like 55, oh, yeah. you got one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> For his retirement, he got a, a bug. Yeah. You know what? One day I'm going to get a van. <laughs> I'm going to drive across the country with it. I think you never should. Never going to see me again. When right, you go into re- in your golden years, like next in, in year. In my golden. <laughs> <laughs> so the murders in the Pacific Northwest culminated on July 14th with the broad daylight abductions of two women from a crowded beach at Lake Sammamish State Park in Washington. Female witnesses described an attractive young man wearing a white tennis outfit with his left arm in a sling, speaking with a light accent, perhaps Canadian or British. He introduced himself as Ted, asked for their help unloading a sailboat from his tan or bronze-colored Volkswagen Beetle. So this time, four refused, and then one finally said yes, went to him with his car, and saw that there was no sailboat, and bailed. Good for her. Yeah, and the interesting thing about this is that He's so thirsty now that he goes out. He gets an outfit. He he puts on an accent, but he's still using his name, his real name. Like uh, this is like out of Fletch. What? You ever see the movie Fletch? Mm. Oh my god! You know what? What year is was that? It like made? Hitch? Yeah, it's exactly like Hitch. Yeah, like, yeah. Like the Wolf we are going to have. Yeah, I'm gonna. You guys are going to get homework. It's not going to be any true crime related. I don't want to watch it's a black and be... white movie, Billy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to watch one of those moving flip books of animation. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, an age baked joke that was actually funny. So you <laughs> hey, you left in mind too. No, nah, well, they, they, were, they were both pretty good. All right, thanks. Okay, so, but uh, yeah, this, it's just ridiculous. He's he's like, he, he's so good, but then he's also so bad. Like, think well, he's of the fake so name. confident. Well, remember the yeah. quote that he has, which is like when you when you have to change your first tire. I think this is what's his quote. Oh, if, yeah. When you have to change your first tire, you know exactly where the lug wrench is. But when you're thirtieth, you have no idea where. Is. Right. Yeah, a, whatever. I'm paraphrasing. I'm sorry. That was not Mr. the quote. Bobby. I just heard it the other day. It was well, wrong. But was it? It was something along those lines. Well, something about being nervous the first time. You're nervous time, the first time, and then by and the thirtieth time, you have no idea where the the tire iron is. And on the same day at this lake, he also approached Janice Ann Ott, who was 23 years old, and witnesses saw him do this. He approached her with the same sailboat story. And- Wait, sorry, I'm going to cut you off. At this point in time. Because people have gotten away from him. He hasn't killed everybody that he's attacked, correct? Yeah, but I don't think... Yeah. No. No, no people he has killed, yeah. No, no, no we haven't... He hasn't oh, killed has anybody. Y- yes. He's so, like, killed everybody. So, no, they... We, the no. people who escaped, we haven't gotten to them yet. No, we haven't gotten to the people who escaped yet. But, but if he's doing some of this in broad daylight, like, people have to have, like, a... I know what you mean. People have... He's gone up to people and tried the shtick, and they said no. And they have to have heard through the media or whatever that yeah. this serial killer, Ted, quote-unquote, is doing these things. Like, No. No? I think Not so. yet. I think there's no way that he just chose this time to be so thirsty and asking everybody, and that's how they got... I bet that when he was using this shtick with other people, he must have gone up to a, one person before, and, and, the, and the police just didn't canvas well enough. Right. I'm telling you. Okay. There's no way that there he... Wasn't, he wasn't on the radar yet. Yeah. yeah but Not even close. But there's no way that he, he got six women to do the same thing in with the same technique and all six said yes and then suddenly here four said no right away until he got one he definitely had people that said no and then the cops just didn't get to him right the people who became the victims of these killers they didn't wake up in the morning thinking they were going to die that day none of them did and not being aware of their situation trusting too easily it made me cynical, and it made me careful. Uh, so it, beca- it, it had an impact on my personal life because I became more aware of how personally vulnerable we can be if we're not careful, if we don't understand our surroundings, if we don't understand who's around us. After Janice Ann Ott... A few hours later, Denise Marie Nasland, a 19-year-old woman, left a picnic to go to the restroom at the same lake and never returned. 
And Bundy later confessed to one of his biographers that Janice was still alive when he returned with Nasland and that he forced one to watch as he murdered the other, but later denied it in the interview he conducted on the eve of his execution. So this is some real sadistic shit. Like, I think of all of his crimes, this is the worst story. And it's also, he gets he gets sloppiest here because he's he's using the same line on multiple women. He gets one, gets away with her, goes to a, his place of seclusion, ties her up to a tree, and then comes back. Well, you can tell he gets in these frenzied modes. This is like a day yeah. like what he did at the sorority house, mm-hmm. where it's like he was built up and hadn't done one so in a while. Like a break. And he has this just like anxiety to, to do it. And he gets really sloppy. It's very frenzied. Very, very frenzied. frenzied. Where it's like, I'm going to get so f- greedy. I'm going to have two alive ones and make them watch each other. Yeah. Like, way to, so, again, self-preservation is not his thing. He just got really lucky. And I think that's because it was the 70s. If this had been even the 80s or 90s, mm-hmm. he would have gotten caught a lot sooner. But the communication was really lacking among, between police forces yeah. at this time. Eventually, hunters stumbled across the skeletal remains of Otten Asland near a service road about two miles from the lake where he picked them up. But an extra femur and several vertebrae were found at the site, and they were later identified as another victim. So the remains of four more victims were discovered on Taylor Mountain, which is a place where Bundy frequently hiked. So it's at this point that Elizabeth Cloffer and Rule and a DES employee and a UW psychology professor all recognized this composite and the car and called to reported Bundy as a possible suspect. But detectives who were receiving up to 200 tips per day thought it was very unlikely that a clean-cut law student with no adult criminal record could be the perpetrator. Oh, and the fact my. that many people... It's not just like... It wasn't just one. They said they were getting 200 tips a day. Yeah, the fact that four separate people who didn't know each other called up and said, we know this guy, and they went and said... It it, it reminds me of the Manson killings when they had two killings in the same time period, you know, one after another, and said, no, there's no link between them because the victims wouldn't have known each other. And we we know that this was a drug killing and this was a random killing. This is ridiculous, and shame on the cops for this one. This is also the point where he was introducing himself as Ted. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, like, a Ted that matches the composite sketch with the same weird bug. But who knows? It's like... Maybe that was reported to one jurisdiction and they got the Ted yeah, detail. It like wasn't we like they know. were getting bulletins over email with new new updates. It was archaic. It was I 70- can't even imagine how they solved anything back in the day. No. It's, I mean, and this is one of those things, at least also to, to go back to the Golden State Killer, like one of the biggest problems they were having was communication between yeah. law enforcement agencies because you'd have to literally send memos in the mail. Yeah. Yeah. To, to share information. Like carrier pigeon. Yeah, it was a huge challenge. And if you had, you couldn't deliver updates in real time. Yeah. And it was all hearsay. It was scribbled on a notepad and then transferred to a police report where someone was typing it. There was so much human error mm-hmm. that even if it was uh, reported properly, human error was playing a huge role in, in all of this. Right. Yeah. But the one thing that it does do is that this sketch is out there now. The idea that he's driving around a Volkswagen bug. So as brazen as he was with this and that he 100% should have been caught, he goes, he skips town. He's like, this is too hot now. I'm going to go. And he goes to Utah. But just because he gets away and he escapes Washington and escapes all his picture being on all these newspapers and all these TV stations doesn't mean his reign of terror stops. Because in Utah, he's just going to go start all over again. Serial killers are important, but can you think of anything more important in the the eyes of the rest of the world than their victims? That's why we pursue them. That's why we imprison them. That's why we try them. That's why we execute them, because of their victims. So it's, it's a psychological Mobius loop, snake eating its own tail. And there is nothing rational about being a fan of a serial killer. Nothing whatsoever. And that's the, the emotional and psychological chaos that uh, that makes this particular element of true crime so fascinating and palpable and visceral because we don't understand it. And I'm not sure we ever will. Bananas. We got to stop. We're out of time. I'm sorry, guys. I know you guys get very frustrated about two, and I'm sorry this is probably going to be a three-parter, but... 
This case is insanely robust. Like, there is so much information. We're trying to compact as much as we can into it. So we're going to have to come back next week with the remainder of the story. And it gets f***ing crazy. Right. And this is going to be a three-parter for many reasons. It's like he's one of the most fascinating serial killers of all time. The span and scope and depth of his crimes is insane. His escapes. His, his time on death row. Like it's just, Executions. Yeah. His relationships. His love child. Just it goes on and on. So forgive us. But if any story deserves a three-parter, it is this one. Yeah. And exactly. And if you guys want to see on social media, we'll post some of the pictures of the story up until now. You can see the sketch of him. And the car that he was driving and see if the sketch and you would say if you were working next to this person. Yeah, I remember that guy. You know. Yeah. Does it look like Zac Efron? Yeah or nay? I think yes. I haven't seen the sketch, actually. So until next week, follow us on social media at The First Degree, at Alexis Linkletter, at Billy Jensen, at Jack Vanek. Write us if you are one degree away from a murder or other stranger than fiction crime on our DMs or on our website. We have a submissions page or... Hello at the first degree podcast.com and rate and review us. Give us some good reviews. Let us know how good we sound now. Thanks, guys. Because I think it's great. Yes. And keep your friends close, but not that close. Bye. Over and out and happy. Measure your foot day. Measure your foot day. You're really playing happy in the whole ice foot hockey, fetish this thing, aren't you? Ice hockey garbage truck day. Over and out. Bye. Did 10 putty have a foot fetish? Yeah. Oh my God, he loved socks. Who doesn't? (laughs) Over and out. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 